you're hearing this episode on the Really True Fiction feed, I just want to let you know that episodes of The Liberal Soul won't always appear here. If you're enjoying The Liberal Soul, please subscribe to it on whatever app you use to get your podcasts. Have a great day, and may the Force be with you. The Liberal Soul is a podcast where I talk to people about their passions and their interests. I'll relay some of my own, as well as discuss works and thinkers important to the history of liberal philosophy. The Liberal Soul is meant to represent the people who are curious about the world and live to see themselves and others flourish within it. Please be aware that this podcast has some crude language and sometimes some bad words, but so it goes. decided today one of the things I'm going to do, start to do at the beginning of these solo episodes is tell a joke because I think that would be fun. So here it is. What did the snowman say to the other snowman? Hey, do you smell carrots? <laughs> yeah, as you can tell, I've spent most of my working life running programs for kids. <laughs> so my jokes land just as poorly there. Okay, so this is a big endeavor because I am going to be starting what I've decided now to be a four-part, I guess, series. I never would exactly call it that. But one of the books that has been really influential in my philosophy around liberalism and thinking about it is a book that I first picked up, I guess, probably five years ago, as I'm recording this in 2021. And it is called The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. As some listeners may have noticed, this is someone I've referenced a few times. And in fact, I believe it was episode seven. I actually did like a half hour episode on a a section of this book where Popper is mm, accusing Plato essentially of conflating individualism with egoism. So basically saying individualism is selfishness as a bit of propaganda. And I always knew I'd want to tackle this book. The thing is, it's so big, and it's so dense, and it's full of so much information that it's definitely not one I can do all at once. So my goal is to do a four-part series, I think, because the book itself is about 500 pages, and it's split up into two main volumes. So I figure if I do two episodes on each volume, four episodes total, that might make it tolerable to you, dear listener. (laughs) Uh, But I just think that there's so much value in this kind of historical navigation through uh, essentially the enemies of the open society. And in very broad strokes, the three thinkers that Karl Popper labels as the enemies of the open society. I mean, obviously there are many, but the three main thinkers that he thinks have most contributed to the mental architecture and apparatus that surround the potential of people who want the closed society are Plato, Plato being, of course, the ancient Greek philosopher. Uh, And then the second one he goes and says almost nothing nice about is the 19th century German philosopher Hegel and his 
<laughs> insistence on the rise of oracular philosophy. And then the last person, he, he has a lot nicer things to say about this person, but basically that their ideas inadvertently and over the long term create the closed society, and that's Karl Marx. And he goes through very different reasons why this is the case for these three uh, thinkers. I just remember reading this book and feeling such a education, I guess, and just so much of well-articulated thoughts and feelings and like a breath of fresh air when someone who's really intelligent and really learned can point out things that you never had really thought about before. And so today is going to be part one in me talking about the Open Society's Enemies. And I just want to say from the outset that I am not an expert on the works of Plato or Hegel or Marx. I am taking all of my thoughts and credibilities through this book by Karl Popper. And the book itself has like probably over 100 pages of notes and references. This is a very scholarly work. I think it was published in the 50s. It was probably published at different times too because there were different volumes. <laughs> I'm not so good at checking up on that kind of stuff as uh, any friend of mine will know. So apologies. But yeah, I just want to say that I I know, and it's referenced in the book a few times by Popper, but I know that there was a lot of value in the works of Plato and Marx too, for sure, Marx, um, especially sociologically, I think. I'm less inclined to think that there's much of value in the work of Hegel uh, in the long term. I think the thesis, antithesis, synthesis of Hegel is useful, but only if you hold it at arm's length, which the problem of these three gentlemen's philosophy is that you don't hold these ideas at arm's length. You hold them close to the chest, and that uh, can produce a lot of the problems with them. I think if you take if you take a good heuristic a little too seriously, it can become a really horrible manifest reality. And so I'm admitting from the beginning that I'm not a scholar on these. So take whatever I say with a grain of salt. But I think it's the ideas, of course, are always more relevant than the person who came up with them. Um, I think from a historical point of view, it's just useful to know who came up with them so that you can orient the listener's attention to who you're talking about so that you can close the door on <laughs> Anno Me. Like, <laughs> who are we talking about? Where are we going? So yeah, it's Plato, Hegel, and Marx. So for today, I'm going to be talking about the first part of volume one, which is the spell of Plato. So today I'll be talking about um, the chapters and his his discussion on historicism, that be Popper's talk of historicism, a little bit of Heraclitus as one of the thinkers before Plato, who was a proto-Plato in his concepts, I suppose, especially about flux. Then Plato's theory of the forms and the ideas is the perfect static things that exist out in the universe. And a little bit of his descriptive sociology and his take on justice. Because I just want to reiterate again, this book I think is so... This is like a bellwether book on freedom and how to think about it and where so much of the impetus behind, at least in history, and then it'd be interesting to evaluate it today, so much of the impetus for people who are not interested in the open society and what are some of the kind of progenitor factors that infect the minds of people or the desires or conscious or subconscious to remain a closed 
taboo-based mystical society. But just before I begin, I want to thank anyone who listens to this show for listening. It's a real pleasure to make it. If you are enjoying the show, please subscribe on the podcast app of your choice. And if you listen on Apple Podcasts, I'd really appreciate if you could leave a rating and a review, because that's a really good way to help new people find the show. Uh, if they're, if you're curious about anything, you want to ask me any questions, I'm really open to interacting with listeners. You can send me an email at theliberalsoul87 at gmail.com. I have a Facebook group, The Liberal Soul, so you can search that up and find it and join. And I also post new episodes there, as well as... I do have a Twitter at LiberalSoul87. I'm still not very good at using Twitter, and I don't use it much. So uh, maybe you can teach me how to use it better, <laughs> dear listener. So I can be found in those places, and uh, I just want to say thanks again for listening. So chapter one, historicism and the myth of destiny. So historicism is the concept that Popper uses throughout the whole book, all 500 pages, as the philosophical misstep that brings about the closed society, the opposite of the liberal open society. And so I'm going to read the very first paragraph of the book where he talks about what his concept of historicism is. Popper. It is widely believed that a truly scientific or philosophical attitude towards politics and a deeper understanding of social life in general, must be based upon a contemplation and interpretation of human history. While the ordinary man takes the setting of his life and the importance of his personal experiences and petty struggles for granted, it is said that the social scientist or philosopher has to survey things from a higher plane. He sees the individual as a pawn, as a somewhat insignificant instrument in the general development of mankind." And he finds that the really important actors on the stage of history are either the great nations and their great leaders, or perhaps the great classes, or the great ideas. However this may be, he will try to understand the meaning of the play which is performed on the historical stage. He will try to understand the laws of historical development. If he succeeds in this, he will, of course, be able to predict future developments. He might then put politics upon a solid basis and give us practical advice by telling us which political actions are likely to succeed or likely to fail. This is a brief description of an attitude which I call historicism. It is an old idea, or rather a loosely connected set of ideas which have become, unfortunately, so much a part of our spiritual atmosphere that they are usually taken for granted and hardly ever questioned. So when he talks about historicism there, you'll hear that I wrote, read words, uh, historical stage, stage of history, great nations, great leaders, great classes, and great ideas. In the book, all of these things are capitalized so that they are the, mm, what would it be, proper noun of this or the, or the abstract idea, basically. So what Popper is even <laughs> showing in his, I guess that's punctuation, by capitalizing these things, is that they're conceived of as abstracts, as abstract nouns, which is why they're capitalized. They are the stand-in of the kind of metaphysical idea of these things that are outside of space and time and affect human affairs, kind of subtly winking and nodding at the fact that he's going to be talking about Plato and Plato coming up with the theory of forms and ideas that <laughs> are responsible for the concept of why we would even capitalize great nations or the great man or the historical stage. But that's historicism is that it's a, on the next page, he says that it, it can be theistic. So it can be supernatural. It can be naturalistic. It can be about blood and soil. 
This is a, a patriotism, uh, like a nationalism. This is our land, the fatherland, the motherland. It can obviously be spiritual too. There's like a lot of cults that would form around, at least originally, a spiritual form of historicism. I mean, I'm talking about my ass here because I don't really know, but this is kind of a little bit of like the Mormonism of making Christianity so American and that the like the chosen people were actually from came to America, that kind of thing. There can be economic forms of historicism, which I think was so infected in Marx's work. And so the point that Popper makes is that all of these forms of historicism, they grew out of tribal life. They grew out of life where we were such a closed-knit group of our ancestors. And collectivism also grew out of this form of thinking, where we had to understand ourselves and the world around us in opposition to so many other closed tribes that we were competing with and what kind of stories we build up to tell about our tribe so that our tribe can be the one that the members of the tribe believe in to compete against the other tribes. So from the very beginning of the book, Popper's point is that the antecedent seeds that grow out of tribal societies are exactly the kind of ideas that allow us to try and return back to a closed society as versus an open one because tribal societies need to be kind of exclusive and the idea of the chosen people capital c capital p is an element of what i talked about with jonathan Haidt's work morality binds and blinds you're in the tribe so here's our great story and now everyone else who doesn't have this great story is an outsider and we can protect our nucleus, our sociological nucleus from outsiders. And so that's where Popper argues that that comes from. And then the next person Popper talks about is the ancient philosopher Heraclitus, who came before Plato. And Heraclitus is a philosopher for making famous the idea that everything is in change or everything is in flux. His famous line is, you can't step in the same river twice because the river is always flowing. So the next time you step in, it's a different river. So he is credited with beginning this idea of like, there's so much change that's going on in the world and that can be really undermining to a sense of stability and order and a law-like feature that you would want to govern your society. And law-like, I mean, not in the sense that we would use like the rule of law, but a kind of metaphysical law that could keep things in order. And what's really interesting is that Popper talks about how a lot of these things come from people who were living in really turbulent societies where there was a lot of societal shift going on. Here's Popper. It is surprising to find that these early fragments dating from about 500 BC, so much of that is characteristic of modern historicist and anti-democratic tendencies. But apart from the fact that Heraclitus was a thinker of unsurpassed power and originality, and that, in consequence, many of his ideas have, through the medium of Plato, become part of the main body of philosophic tradition, the similarity of doctrine can perhaps be explained but to some extent by the similarity of social conditions in the relevant periods. It seems as if historicist ideas can easily become prominent in times of great social change. They appeared when Greek tribal life broke up as well as when the Jews were shattered by the impact of the Babylonian conquest. There can be little doubt, I believe, that Heraclitus's philosophy is an expression of a feeling of drift, a feeling which seems to be a typical reaction to the dissolution of the ancient tribal forms of social life. In modern Europe, historicist ideas were revived during the Industrial Revolution. 
and especially through the impact of the political revolutions in America and France. It appears to be more than a mere coincidence that Hegel, who adopted so much of Heraclitus's thought and passed it on to all modern historicist movements, was a mouthpiece of the reaction against the French Revolution. And so all of that is just to point out that Popper is feeling like he's noticing a potential uneasiness in the psyches of historicist thinkers around the turbulence of the world that they see around them and the desire to go back to the tribal form of life that gets projected uh, often through the law of destiny. It will be our destiny to reclaim the greatness that we once had. That takes us quite well into Plato's ideas of the forms and the ideas. Now, probably many of you have heard of the Platonic ideal, but Popper begins by showing the difference between Heraclitus and Plato and then how Plato takes those ideas even further. So here is Popper. Heraclitus, despite the boldness of his reasoning, seems to have shrunk from the idea of replacing the cosmos by chaos. He seems to have comforted himself, we said, for the loss of a stable world by clinging to the view that change is ruled by an unchanging law. This tendency to shrink back from the last consequence of historicism is characteristic of many historicists. In Plato, this tendency becomes paramount. It was here under the influence of the philosophy of Parmenides. Heraclitus had generalized his experience of social flux by extending it to the world of all things, and Plato, I have hinted, did the same. But Plato also extended his belief in a perfect state that does not change to the realm of all things. He believed that to every kind of ordinary or decaying thing, there corresponds also a perfect thing that does not decay. This belief in perfect and unchanging things, usually called the theory of forms or ideas, became the central doctrine of his philosophy. So an easy way to think about this is that Plato would think of the forms and the ideas as there being a perfect, what we would call metaphysical existent of everything, not just change like Heraclitus talked about, but also like you have a dog, maybe you have a poodle, I have a Great Dane, and the neighbor has a golden retriever. But in the ideal, there's just the ideal dog. And all of the manifest reality dogs are just lesser organic offspring of the ideal. So what this does is it puts out into the world in the most coherent manner yet, and probably most coherent to that time, and still, (laughs) I would argue, very much infected down to our day, this idea that things are more real than the physical. Things are more real than what we can see with our senses and see with our eyes, smell with our nose, taste with our tongue, and touch with our hand, and uh, was, I'm, I'm sure I missed one. Touch? Touch? Whatever. <laughs> and so if you can argue that there's something more real than physical reality, this is kind of the beginning of the kind of mystical form of philosophy that we'll see in a bit was so catastrophic in terms of where the thinking came next. Because if you remember from, I believe it was one of the Thousand Small Sanity episodes I did, I talked about essentialism. And essentialism comes from Plato because essentialism is the idea of what is something essentially, which is the idea from Plato about the form. Well, it's essentially the form, the theory of the form. And I mean, it's kind of abstract, so it's hard to think about it, but it's like the best visual, uh, the best analogy or metaphor I can think of is like a floating thought bubble above the physical world that's perfect and unchanging and doesn't react with time and yet is the idea 
that makes all of the physical things in the world a reality. So because, again, Plato was living such through such turbulent social upheaval, every tree you see, there's the tree in my yard, the tree in your yard, all the trees floating above all those manifest reality trees in the ether. <laughs> again, I can't even think of the right word because it's out, out of space and time. The thought bubble of the perfect tree, the ideal tree, the idea tree is floating above all the real trees we can see in the world. And that's the kind of perfect tree that all of the trees we see in the world are lesser, more bastardized, more degraded and decayed versions of. So it's basically postulating the existence of perfection. That's what Plato kind of does with his forms, is that we see all of the things in the world that are imperfect, but they are actually echoes and resonance, and I think actually offspring of the perfect versions of those things. And that's what those things essentially are, because in this metaphysical schema, Plato says that all of the real things in the world that we see come from those forms. I'll have more to say about that throughout this entire run of this podcast, because I think the idea of essentialism through the forms is one of the biggest mind viruses out there in the academic world, the journalistic world, the professional world, you name it. But uh, we'll talk about that actually right here, because a little bit later in the chapter, he gives a section on essentialism. And so he's talking about how we would go about discovering new things based on the assumption from Plato about the forms. So here's Popper. I used the name methodological essentialism to characterize the view held by Plato and many of his followers that is the task of pure knowledge or science, in inverted commas, to discover and to describe the true nature of things, i.e. their hidden reality or essence. It was Plato's peculiar belief that the essence of sensible things can be found in other and more real things, in their primogenitors or forms. And then a little bit later in the section, he makes a longer section comparing methodological essentialism with what he calls methodological nominalism. And I think that this is a super crucial intellectual and philosophical demarcation, which for all of you philosophy nerds is what Karl Popper is known for, is his concept of demarcation in his other famous work, Conjectures and Refutations, which is basically one of the backbone philosophical defenses of science and how we even go about doing science and what makes science legit versus pseudoscience or non-science or other forms of epistemology. But back to Popper talking about this. Popper, methodological essentialism, i.e. the theory that it is the aim of science to reveal essences and to describe them by means of definitions can be better understood when contrasted with its opposite, methodological nominalism. Instead of aiming at finding out what a thing really is and at defining this true nature, methodological nominalism aims at describing how a thing behaves in various circumstances and especially whether there are any regularities in its behavior. In other words, methodological nominalism sees the aim of science in the description of the things and events of our experience and in an ex explanation of these events, i.e. their descriptions with the help of universal laws. And it sees in our language, and especially in those of its rules, which distinguish properly constructed sentences and inferences from a mere heap of words, the great instrument of scientific description. Words it considers rather as subsidiary tools for this task, and not as names of essences. 
the methodological nominalist will never think that a question like what is energy or what is movement or what is an atom is an important question for physics, but they will attach importance to a question like how can the energy of the sun be made useful or how does a planet move or under what conditions does an atom radiate light? And to those philosophers who tell them that before having answered the what is question, they cannot hope to give exact answers to any of the how questions, the methodological nominalist, or aka scientist, will reply, if at all, by pointing out that they much prefer a modest degree of exactness for what they can achieve by their methods to the pretentious muddle with which they have, <laughs> with, by which the methodological essentialist philosophers have achieved by theirs. So, obviously... Uh, <laughs> no, no punches pulled there by Popper, which by the by is kind of that tone and that attitude and the things that you are knowledgeable and confident in and without those pulled punches is what I'm calling hard-nosed liberalism. Popper knows his points and he knows how to deliver them and he makes no apologies for that. And that's the hard-nosed part of hard-nosed liberalism. So this is just a really important philosophical distinction is between essentialism and nominalism that the scientist doesn't ask what is a tree nearly as much well i mean trees are a little bit more we know a lot more about trees than other things so i like that atom not what is an atom but under what conditions will an atom do this and i this is just a personal thought that i haven't totally fleshed out yet but i have the beginnings of is that i think people want to ask why and what questions like why does the universe exist what is the point of life as if there was a platonic ideal form to the answer to those questions the question like what is the point of life assumes that there is a kind of perfect or free-floating answer to that question that can be found if we just trace the bad answers all the way back up to find the perfect one and I guess my intuition around all of this is just much more like the question itself is is misguided. Instead of what is the point of life, <laughs> I guess the question that occurs to me to ask is like, how can I live my life in such a way that by the end of it, I will felt like it was meaningful? Um, which is a very different question because it puts the ball back into the reality court, not into the plat platonic ideal court. And I know people who ask questions like that aren't thinking at the level of Plato and the platonic form and the free-floating perfect idea. But I do think, I, I'm curious to know to what extent that kind of question is a spontaneous result of someone's psychology versus an, an existential angst versus conditioning. I don't know. It's an open question and it's interesting to me. So if any of you have a strong opinion on that, I'd love to hear it because uh, <laughs> I'm no theologian, but I know Plato was hugely influential on uh, Christianity. So perhaps there are Christians out there who have a have a thought to weigh in on that kind of thing. And so a lot of this, I mean, if you really want to know, you can read this massive book to get the full flavor of the ins and outs of the philosophical argument. But Popper connects that concept of the forms into Plato 
kind of making a political argument around how to best order the state and the society. And this is done mostly in the Republic, although I think it's done in other of his dialogues as well. But the basic outcome of these arguments is that Plato argues that that change is evil and that rest is divine. So it is the goal of the perfect state to kind of get over change and become at rest, a kind of static rest in a similar way that there's this kind of static nature to the ideal or the platonic form. And that's perfection. So he is, because because the form is never changing and perfect, only the the perfect city, the perfect polity, the perfect political system will be mirrored in that. Because as you move from the everyday versions of a thing towards the form, it's becoming more perfect and also becoming more at rest. And so change is anathema to the perfect society in Plato's estimation. And so a little later in the next chapter, Nature and Convention, Popper makes a really good point about how one of the things that Plato goes after is kind of norms and human norms and how that kind of casuistry by Plato is that because norms are human-made, they are contingent or arbitrary and uh, they need to kind of be adjusted for by a more perfect thinker. And uh, here is Popper's rebuttal to that. Popper. The statement that norms are man-made, man-made not in the sense that they were consciously designed, but in the sense that men can judge and alter them, that is to say, in the sense that the responsibility for them is entirely ours, has often been misunderstood. Nearly all misunderstandings can be traced back to one fundamental misapprehension, namely, to the belief that convention implies arbitrariness. That is, if we are free to choose any system of norms we like, then one system is just as good as any other. It must, of course, be admitted that the view that norms are conventional or artificial indicates that there will be a certain element of arbitrariness involved, i.e., that there may be different systems of norms between which there is not much to choose, a fact that has been duly emphasized by Protagoras. But artificiality by no means implies full arbitrariness. Mathematical calculi, for instance, or symphonies or plays, are highly artificial, yet it does not follow that one calculus or symphony or play is just as good as any other. Humans have created new worlds of language, of music, of poetry, of science, and the most important of these is the world of the moral demands for equality, for freedom, and for helping the weak. This is a kind of prototypical uh, argument for pluralism, not relativism, and that just because <laughs> I remember, and maybe it's true now, but one of the most damning things you could say when I was in university, I can remember one of the most damning things you could say about something is that it was a social construction. I took a number of sociology courses. In fact, that is my degree. And the amount of times I heard social construction, constructionist, deconstruction, all of these things is, is kind of mind numbing. And the implication under and the tone of way that someone says social construction is total arbitrariness. It could be any other way. And I, I think that this is a total, like Popper says, misapprehension. It's a misnomer. A social construction being the product of human cultural uh, interplay with itself and with each other, again, doesn't imply pure arbitrariness. Take money, for example. Money is a social construction. Is it not real? Well, it's real in the sense that everyone else believes it's real and it's useful. The methodological essentialist would say, what is money? Which then you could say, well, it's a social construction, so we can do without. 
whereas the methodological nominalist or the liberal soul, I guess, for this purposes of this episode, would say, what kind of thing that can we imbue with value to make our reciprocity fruitful and grow over time with each other? And those are completely different questions when it comes to money. And like, is every kind of money as good as any other kind, even if they're all equally arbitrary? Like at this point, most of the money that I use in my life is digital. It's in the bank, it's in my card, it's on a computer. And I mean, there are almost certainly pitfalls in that model as well that I don't know much about. But I can tell you it's a lot more convenient and easy than carrying around like heaps of coins or, you know, bartering, right? Different forms of trade. Do we want to say that money is just purely arbitrary so we could do without it? Well, the thing is that social constructions, here's a good way to think about it. Anything that's socially constructed is there in some form to solve some sort of problem. And (laughs) the problems might not be the same, but that doesn't mean that social constructions are arbitrary because anything that we inherit in the modern day as a norm or a cultural norm has gone through many iterations of shaving off things or additions. The rules of hockey in 2021 are not the same as the rules, you know, 50, 20 years ago, 50 years ago, 100 years ago. Norms are often getting tweaked and changed and attempted to be improved on based on what kind of problems they're trying to solve. And again, this doesn't happen always consciously. It can, but it is humans trying to, to anticipate a world, talking about a future episode, piecemeal their way through solving different problems at different times. And the removal of socially constructed things does not automatically mean improvement. In fact, it very often means the opposite. So again, I think the scientist or the methodological nominalist or the liberal soul in an intellectual sense is someone who asks not what is a social construction, but what is this social construction doing for us? What is its function? And I think that that's useful because I think that there ultimately there is no answer to what is a social construction in its essential form, right? What is the platonic ideal of a, of a social construction? Well, I guess I don't even know. I mean, I wouldn't even know how to answer that question because I guess it would be a real life version of a human ideal of a social construction. But then I feel like you get into a really confusing regression problem, which I won't bore you with, even though I probably already have. <laughs> but there's another thing that Popper notes in this Nature and Convention chapter that is why kind of historicist thinking can be so appealing to people. And this is such a great sociological insight and social psychological insight that I really resonate with even in our time in 2021. So I'm going to read the little passage here. Popper. Looking back at this brief survey, we may perhaps discern two main tendencies which stand in the way of adopting a critical dualism. Uh, parentheses, critical dualism here is uh, thinking kind of critically about the world and thinking critically about the way you're thinking about the world. I'm So, back to Popper. The first is a general tendency towards monism, that is to say, towards the reduction of norms to facts. The second lies deeper, and it possibly forms the background of the first. It is based upon our fear of admitting to ourselves that the responsibility for our ethical decisions is entirely ours and cannot be shifted to anybody else. 
neither to God, nor to nature, nor to society, nor to history. All these ethical theories attempt to find somebody, or perhaps some argument, to take the burden from us. But we cannot shirk this responsibility. Whatever authority we may accept, it is we who accept it. We only deceive ourselves if we do not realize this simple point. And this gets to the heart of the issue, I think, of why part of what I'm kind of on the fly, <laughs> maybe socially constructing as the liberal soul is the person who can kind of understand that we can't shift our responsibilities onto any other concept, any other person, any other idea, any other blameworthy thing, because it is us who has made the world. It is us who has made social construction. It is us who has made our political institutions, us being human beings who have influenced our education, our culture, our thinking processes, our music, our sports, our, our jokes, our humor, our movies, our stories. All of these are products of the brains of millions and millions and millions of different people, but nonetheless human beings like you and me, who eat, sleep, fear, love, tenderize, feel anxiety, and feel courage, and feel cowardice, all in the same day. And to not shirk the responsibility of embracing all of those things as it is our turn is a very vibrant element of the existential nature of the liberal soul, I believe. And probably one of the reasons why this book resonates with me so clearly is that Popper articulates that with such gravitas and mirth <laughs> all throughout the book, which is one of the reasons I love it. And this is an opposite to what Plato argues, because Plato is saying the opposite of this kind of radical responsibility taking that Popper is talking about. And here's the quote on that. Popper, this social nature of man has its origin in the imperfection of the human individual. In opposition to Socrates, Plato teaches that the human individual cannot be self-sufficient owing to the limitations inherent in human nature. Although Plato insists that there are very different degrees of human perfection, it turns out that even the very few comparatively perfect men still depend upon others who are less perfect, if for nothing else than for having the dirty work, the manual work, done by them. In this way, even the rare and uncommon natures who approach perfection depend upon society, upon the state. They can reach perfection only through the state and in the state. The perfect state must offer them the proper social habitat, without which they must grow corrupt and degenerate. The state, therefore, must be placed higher than the individual, since only the state can be self-sufficient, perfect, and able to make good the necessary imperfection of the individual. So basically, Plato's point is that because human beings are so imperfect, the state must be placed above them because only the state can bring about the perfect perfectibility of human beings. So this is an like this is so ergo ipso facto, anything that the state wants has to be higher than anything the individual wants. This is collectivism 101. This is the idea that the interests of the state or the group or the tribe have to necessarily supersede individuals because individuals are imperfect. Now, <laughs> two problems there, at least. Problem one, never mind 
No, I don't actually know which problem is worse. So I guess I'll just have to say them. Okay, one of the problems I can see is that this argument by Plato assumes his own conclusion about the forms. It assumes the truth of the idea of the eternal, perfect, static, unchanging ideal of the perfect, uh, ideal, unchanging state. And state as in a political entity, not a sense of being. Plato has in no way proved that these forms exist. He has, in no, he has rationalized them. He has not demonstrated them. He has stipulated them and then brought no physical evidence to bear and doesn't even really see the need to bring any physical evidence to bear. He has argued for it through kind of what he considers as axioms a priori, which means without experience. And so ipso facto conclusion, he's, he's assumed his conclusion through his arguments. Well, in my terms, I call this intellectual charlatanism. This is a fraudster. This is a huckster. This is someone who, well, no, maybe not a, maybe not a fraudster because maybe he, it's possible Plato truly believed in his own endeavor. In fact, I think that's what Popper talks about in the book. It's possible that, that so I shouldn't, I shouldn't use that epithet against Plato. It's just that it's unfalsifiable, again, in a Popperian sense. There's no way to prove him right or wrong. So for things that there are no way to demonstrate, not even prove, but like give kind of satisfactory evidence to anybody who doesn't buy into this interpretation of reality that Plato is giving us, it has to be foisted upon people. They're not going to be able to accept it if they don't. Like some people might, some people won't. There's no real way to say. Some people are maybe born with brains more susceptible to a priori rational arguments, and some people are born with brains with more susceptible to empirical a posteriori arguments <laughs> and they're all humans and so since they all live in the state everyone including the people who don't buy into plato's interpretation of reality um, are going to have to live under the dictates that he would talk about because he says so <laughs> because somebody says so and that could be the definition of arbitrary authority is someone who says so because they have a belief that is unfalsifi unfalsifiable and they just want it more. And so they'll use that power and authority over top of you. And then the other reason is more visceral, but nonetheless ethically disastrous and catastrophic is that anything the state does in the name of the state whether it's in ancient Greece or in modern Canada or the United States, is still done by individual human beings, or I guess sometimes computers now. It's still individual people who need to carry out the mandate of the states. So the output of the state is still done by people who are individuals, who by Plato's very point would be Im imperfect and maybe could misinterpret the philosopher king's dictates. Who knows, right? That's not off the table if they're imperfect. Whereas I would say the obvious thing is that everyone is imperfect, including the leaders of a state. And to preempt the future part of Popper's argument, the best thing we can do is figure out how to limit their power, not say who should be the leader. <laughs> uh, so those are my two kind of problems with the way Plato formulates his thought there. 
So the last little section I'm going to talk about today, in the book it's called Section 3, Plato's Political Program, but it's a pretty important part and pretty long, so I'm only going to be able to deal with the first part today, which is the chapter title, Plato's Totalitarian Justice. The first couple paragraphs of, of the first section of this chapter, Plato is arguing that justice is what's in the interest of the best state, halting change. So a state is just, I think, if the ruler rules, the worker works, and the slave are slaves, the, or the slave slaves. So obviously, <laughs> the perfect state still had slaves. So I think he can be ruled out right then and there, but whatever. So here is Popper talking about justice. Popper. What do we really mean when we speak of justice? I do not think that verbal questions of this kind are particularly important, or that it is possible to make a definite answer to them, since such terms are always used in various senses. However, I think that most of us, especially those whose general outlook is humanitarian, mean something like this. A, an equal distribution of the burden of citizenship, i.e. of those limitations of freedom which are necessary to social life. B, Equal treatment of the citizens before the law, provided, of course, that c. The laws show neither favor nor disfavor towards individual citizens or groups or classes. d. Impartiality of the courts of justice, and e. An equal share in the advantages, and not only in the burden, which membership of the state may offer to its citizens. If Plato had meant by justice anything of this kind, then my claim that his program is purely totalitarian would certainly be wrong, and all those would be right who believe that Plato's politics rested upon an acceptable humanitarian basis. But the fact is that he meant by justice something completely different. What did Plato mean by justice? I assert that in the Republic he used the term just as a synonym for that which is in the interest of the best state. And what is in the interest of this best state? to arrest all change, by the maintenance of a rigid class division and class rule. If I am right in this interpretation, then we should have to say that Plato's demand for justice leaves his political program at the level of totalitarianism, and we should have to include that we must guard against the danger of being impressed by mere words. And I think this is something that runs through a lot of Popper's work on Plato, is that he is a kind of sneaky um, propagandist using words in one sense that people have a general conception of in a way that he means them, which isn't the same thing, and then getting people to go along with them. And I think that this is a... <laughs> if you um, go back to my episode on politics in the English language, uh, this is something that I think is super crucial. George Orwell. This, this is probably... I mean, George Orwell, it's hard to imagine what his most lasting contribution to the open society is, but I think it's it's got to be his insights on language and how propaganda can be used. Because on the next page, this is a point that Popper himself makes more deeply. Popper. This result is startling and opens up a number of questions. Why did Plato claim, in the Republic, that justice meant inequality if in general usage it means equality? So, parentheses again, Plato is using a word in the opposite of its kind of nominal general sense. Back to it. Popper. To me, the only likely reply seems to be that he wanted to make propaganda for his totalitarian state by persuading the people that it was the just state. But was such an attempt worth his while, considering that it is not words, but what we mean by them, that matters? Of course it was worthwhile. This can be seen from the fact that he fully succeeded in persuading his readers, down to our day, that he was candidly advocating justice, i.e. that justice they were striving for. 
and it is a fact that he thereby spread doubt and confusion among equalitarians and individualists who, under the influence of his authority, began to ask themselves whether his idea of justice was not truer and better than theirs. Well, I think in the modern age we can see words that have salutary meanings if taken in their general sense that are used almost in the opposite. Okay, the general principle is that there are people, like Plato, who have certain agendas and political agendas that will use words like justice or mercy or kindness or things that are generally salutary that we want in life, use them in a way that has a completely different meaning, but use the same word, and it's confusing. And it is confusing until you see it, and then it shouldn't be confusing to anyone anymore. Because, of course, it's not the words we use, but what we mean by the words we use that really matters. Honesty is not using all the right words in the most, like, what is the perfect word sense? Because, again, I don't think there is a perfect word. But am I able to more or less convey the true nature of my psychology to you through language? And if we can use language in that normative nominal sense, we've done what we need to with the words, because again, what we mean by them is more important than the words that we use. And and, and Plato using the word justice to mean what is in the interest of the best state versus all of those more humanitarian things that Popper pointed out in that passage is a sign, I think, of Plato's penchants for propaganda and dishonesty, because propaganda is just a fancy word for dishonesty or misleading, and a savvy purveyor of social and cultural messaging, or branding, as it's so-called, is going to see this everywhere and not be fooled by it. And then in this section, Popper compares Plato to Pericles, and we'll have more to hear about Pericles later, but Pericles was kind of the great democratic leader of democratic Athens, the great leader of its ancient history. And so this section was really, was really good. So, Popper. Equalitarianism, proper, is the demand that the citizens of the state should be treated impartially. It is the demand that birth, family connection, or wealth must not influence those who administer the law to the citizens. In other words, it does not recognize any natural privileges, although certain privileges may be conferred by the citizens upon those they trust. This equalitarian principle has been admirably formulated by Pericles a few years before Plato's birth in an oration which has been preserved by Thucydides. It will be quoted more fully in chapter 10, but two of its sentences may be given here. Our laws, said Pericles, afford equal justice to all alike in their private disputes. But we do not ignore the claims of excellence. When a citizen distinguishes himself, when he is preferred to the public service, not as a matter of privilege, but as a reward for merit, and poverty is not a bar. Pericles then are suggesting that the laws are applied equally to all the citizens, but no individual person who shows merit or distinguishes themselves through work or things that aren't purely a matter of privilege, which again, (laughs) I would humbly slash... Uh, wearily submit that the in our modern age, privilege is maybe the perfect example of a word that has a kind of general sense around like good fortune or good luck, but is now applied so much more to mean like anyone who seems to be doing better than anybody else based on immutable characteristics is a good example of a modern day version of the way Plato is using justice in his sense. And yet 
in this point, Pericles says that if you distinguish you, yourself in some way, so it's basically like a meritocracy. What would it be like a meritocracy with a cement basement that wants to keep rising? So we want to we want to give everybody the possibility to be in the meritocracy and to grow and to develop their skills, but we also want to reward the people who do distinguish themselves through the ways that human beings consider to be the fair way to do that, which is hard work, discipline, study, education, practice, mastery, development, and then all of those infused with the moral emotions like treating other people with kindness, um, not cheating, uh, doing it the hard way, doing it thoughtfully, understanding that even though we don't want to be collectivist, part of living a meaningful life is self-made communities with other people that you care about and then wanting to make sure uh, people that even people that aren't in your community also want to be in their self-made communities. I would argue all of these things were at least maybe not manifestly real in a Periclean Athens, but were at least theoretically possible in principle based on the ethics and the, and the uh, ideas therein. And so just about to wrap up this episode, part one, Popper has a few more things on this section of political, uh, the totalitarianism of Plato that I wanted to read out. So Popper, as already indicated, the important and difficult question of the limitations of freedom cannot be solved by a cut and dry formula. And the fact that there will always be borderline cases must be welcomed, for without the stimulus of political problems and political struggles of this kind, the citizens' readiness to fight for their freedom would soon disappear, and with it, their freedom. This is exactly, I think, this is like a mirror of the argument of, I guess it was the second part of John Stuart Mill's On Liberty, where John Stuart Mill talked about, even if the majority opinion is the truth, it needs to be argued still to keep that truth relevant and vital in their minds. For again, without the stimulus of political problems and political struggles, citizens' readiness to fight for their freedom will soon disappear, and with it their freedom. Well, I don't know. I mean, I don't have any data on this, but it's uh, useful to think what, what, what we think about our, the citizenry of our country's uh, readiness to fight for freedom. <laughs> I just leave it there as a thought. And the last concept I want to talk about in this part is what protectionism is called in the book. Protectionism being this, the because the state in this sense, in the platonic sense, is the ideal state is what we're striving for. We need to protect it. And protecting the perfect state or the perfect god or the perfect entity becomes an element of sanctity and therefore of worship. And so here's Popper's thought on that Popper. In other words, the state is said to be something higher or nobler than an association with rational ends. It is an object of worship. It has higher tasks than the protection of human beings and their rights. It has moral tasks. To take care of virtue is the business of a state which truly deserves this name, says Aristotle. If we try to translate this criticism into the language of political demands, then we find that these critics of protectionism want two things. First, they wish to make the state an object of worship. From our point of view, there is nothing to say against this wish. It is a religious problem, and the state worshippers must solve for themselves how to reconcile their creed with other religious beliefs, for example, with the first commandment. The second demand is political. 
In practice, this demand would simply mean that officers of the state should be concerned with the morality of the citizens, and that they should use their power not so much for the protection of the citizens' freedom as for the control of their moral life. In other words, it is the demand that the realm of legality, i.e. of state-enforced norms, should be increased at the expense of the realm of morality proper, i.e. of norms enforced not by the state, but by our own moral decisions, by our conscience. Such a demand or proposal can be rationally discussed, and it can be said against it that those who raise such demands apparently do not see that this would be the end of the individual's moral responsibility, and that it would not improve but destroy morality. It would replace personal responsibility by tribalistic taboos and by the totalitarian irresponsibility of the individual. Against this whole attitude, the individualist must maintain that the morality of states— if there is any such thing, tends to be considerably lower than that of the average citizen, so that it is much more desirable that the morality of the state should be controlled by the citizens rather than the other way around. What we need and what we want is to moralize politics and not to politicize morals. Yeah, um, I'm almost tempted to just leave it at that because it's so well said or well written in that book. But reading a, a kind of paragraph like that so resonates in 2021 in the kind of passivity. Again, it's kind of like outsourcing our moral consciences to the state, or if we make it a thing of worship. And I think this is a huge, huge issue of our times, but like how to think about an insistence on the government being the solving of our problems, as opposed to thinking of government as protecting the rights of individual citizens to solve them problems with each other and with their own countries. Because that outsourcing of that problem solving to government shirks us of moral responsibilities and responsibilities in general. I guess that's kind of the brave new world uh, somatic appeal. I mean, the the desire for comfort is obviously so so powerful, and it's powerful in me. I like <laughs> I like the things that I have, and I like my life and the comforts I have within it. So I'm part of this churn. But it's interesting. It's worth thinking about and worth talking about with other thoughtful, curious people about how. We want to remain an open society versus a closed one. If you have no interest in an open society, probably everything I say, and certainly this book will be almost of no interest to you. <laughs> but if you are a person who has an interest in living in an open and free society, these are really important things to be worth talking about and thinking about, I think. So anyway, that it will be part one of a four-part miniseries, I guess, on this book, The Open Society and Its Enemies by Karl Popper. I just want to say again, thanks to everyone who uh, listens to this podcast. It's a real treat to make it. If you like it, uh, I mean, you can find it on all major podcasting apps. I have a Facebook group, Liberal Soul, uh, email liberalsoul87 at gmail.com. Yeah, if you like it, tell your friends. (laughs) I think these ideas are super interesting and super crucial. So tell your friends. And if you are interested in talking any more about it, send me an email. Uh, or send me a message on Facebook because I love talking about this stuff. So once more, thanks for listening, everybody. This was part one of The Open Society and Its Enemies. You found the liberal soul.